Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Brethren, we have been going through a series on Philippians as we were focusing on laying the foundation for our congregation. And we said we would look at this Philippian congregation because they were a healthy congregation. And we want to start off as well as we can. Uh, There was no doctrinal error in this congregation. They were very supportive of Paul, unlike some of the other congregations. But they did have one problem, which Paul had to write to them about, and it had to do with uh, interpersonal relationships. And, And I think that's the problem. Even though we mean well, even though we want to do well, as uh, Brother Jan pointed out in his sermon, that we fall short. We're all fallen, we all fall short. And sometimes that affects brethren in the congregation. So let's just go back to Philippians 2.12, just to open up. We're not going to spend much time here, but we just want to use it as context for Matthew 18. I believe that we cannot understand Matthew 18 properly without understanding Philippians 2. And in Philippians 2.12... We had noted, if you were here for the Bible study, that it says, therefore, my beloved, and that therefore comes after studying the mind of Christ, how humble he was, and how he came to this earth and he humiliated himself, and as much as he abased himself, God the Father raised him up to the highest place. So Christ didn't raise himself up. What Christ did was he humiliated himself. And because of that, God raised him up to the highest place. Very different to Lucifer. (coughs) Lucifer was trying to exalt himself, and God struck him down. So what it's saying now is, therefore, because we see this pattern in Christ, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When I first saw this, I got this inkling that the working out of the salvation was plural. That it's something we must do collectively. I've since studied the Greek, and it's absolutely this way. It is absolutely this way. The the Greek language is what they say, it's highly inflected. So every word has a stem and then a suffix. And every word might have 12, 16, 30 suffixes. And the suffix tells you whether it's plural, what tense the verb is in, uh, what the case is. Um, it just tells you if it's a subject, if it's an object. All of that is driven by the suffix that's on the word. The stem gives you the definition. The suffix gives you all the other information. In English, our, our language depends on order. So if I said, you know, I wrote a letter to Jesse, you would know that I'm the one doing the writing, and Jesse's the one receiving the letter because of the order of the language. In Greek, when you look at the original language, it's not unusual to read a paragraph or a sentence that would read, um, a letter wrote I, Jesse. The order doesn't matter in Greek, because it's the ending of each word that gives you the information as to what the word means. So just very quickly, um, beloved is plural in Greek. So it takes the, the plural form. So he's speaking to the whole congregation. You, in English... You can't tell when I say you if I'm speaking to one person or if I'm speaking to many. In Greek, the you is plural. So, beloved, you, plural, have always obeyed. 
The verb obeyed is plural. So they have always obeyed him. So now, not only in my presence, my and presence are singular. So it's my presence, not yours, my presence. But much more in my absence. My and absence are singular. Work out is plural. Your own is plural. Salvation is singular. So there's one salvation for all of us. We have to collectively work it out. And what Paul is saying is, you've always obeyed me. And this word but, there's two words for but in Greek. One is de, one is Allah. De is like a soft transition. It could say, I could say like, you know, I feel like eggs this morning, but I'm going to have pancakes. It's just a soft transition. I was going to have this, but I'll have that. Allah is much stronger. It negates everything that comes before. So Paul is saying, you've always obeyed me. Anytime I've asked you to do something, when I show up and I ask you to do something, you do it. Allah. It means strike that out. It has no value now. What has value is obeying me in my absence. But if you don't obey me in my absence, you could lose out on everything. So all of your obedience in my presence means nothing if you don't obey me now in my absence. So work out. This is, uh, in Greek, this is katergazomai, uh, which is the infinitive form of the verb. But it's actually here, katergazomeste which is second person plural. So you, plural, must do this, and it's a reflexive verb, which means you do it for your own benefit. So you must do this for your own benefit, your salvation. And then fear and trembling are singular. So there's one salvation, and each one of us individually must be very afraid to lose it. Philippians 2.13 says, For... So as we work out our salvation, he says, For it is God who works in you. And the word there, works, is energeo, and it's singular. So this is something God is doing by himself. It's not a collective verb. It's God who energeo, works in you. Think of the word energy. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this working out of our salvation is not something we can do humanly. It's something that the divine God puts something in us that we want to do what's right, and we actually have the power to do what's right. And what I'm proposing is the requirement that is given in Matthew 18. What Jesus Christ, our Lord, is commanding us to do is impossible without God working in us. So it must be God in us that makes us want to do Matthew 18 and gives us the ability to do Matthew 18. And, and again, all this, this entire instruction here is in the context of the mind of Christ. That we have to have this mind that Christ had in us. And it's a mind of humility. This is the very God who left heaven came to earth as a servant and humiliated himself to the point of death. That mind is the mind we must have in us. It is impossible without divine intervention. Okay. Now, this working out, he says, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure. 
So God puts something in us that enables us to want to do and gives us the ability to do His good pleasure. What's His good pleasure? Let's look at Isaiah 53. What is this good pleasure that God is going to give us the ability and the will to do? Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is God's good pleasure. It it gave God pleasure to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you shall make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So when Christ left the Godhead and came to earth and humiliated himself and he was bruised to the point of death, that gave God pleasure. Because that is the vehicle with which he is able to save the whole world. So, God wants the mind of Christ in us and through his miraculous working, he's going to give us both the desire and the ability to do his good pleasure. To be like Christ. And his good pleasure was to bruise Christ. So, the scripture says, this is what you were called to. You were called to suffer. And this is what gives God pleasure. It's not not that God is not a, uh, is it a masochist? Yes, is that the word? Yeah. No, no. God has a higher intention. He's working something out. And if we are willing to be like Christ and go to the slaughter and not open our mouth, suffer with dignity and commitment, something special is working out. And just as Christ humiliated himself and God raised him up to the highest place, this is the same process we're undergoing. We are going to learn humility and we are not going to puff ourselves up. But because of that, the more we abase ourselves, the higher position God is going to give us. Christ has the highest position. Okay. So as we're working this out, this is like a, think of a workout. So when you come to the church, you're going to have a workout. Things are going to go wrong. The strangest things are going to happen to you. It's going to be a workout. Okay. Now, three conditions. One is, we're all fallen. You could do wrong. Maybe you sin against me. So you're at fault. Second condition, I could be at fault. I'm fallen. I do something to harm you. Third condition, we don't know who's at fault. It's unclear. And there are scriptures that cover each of these. The first one, we'll just look at it really quickly, is maybe you're at fault. It's not clear. Maybe you're at fault. We would go to Matthew 5. How should you behave if you've done something wrong or if I suspect you of doing something wrong? Matthew 5, verse 21, says, well, let's just drop down to 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you know what? God is saying, I don't want your worship. It's wonderful that you want to worship me, but if you know that your brother or sister, you may have done something to harm them, stop. Take care of that first. And then come back. Uh, Leave your 
gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So this is how we must handle it. If perhaps we have done something to offend a brother, or, or the bro- maybe, the, maybe it's the brother's imagination. We haven't done anything. But we can tell that the brother thinks we've done something. God is saying, reconcile first. Then come and worship. Okay. Matthew 18 is if I've done something wrong. How do, how, sorry, if, if I've been wronged, how do I handle that? So let's just hold off for that. Let's look at the other one where we're not sure who's wrong. It's very unclear. 1 Corinthians 6 is what we have for this. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? So this is a dispute where it's unclear and we've got to go to court. And let, 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 let the court decide. And what 1 Corinthians 6 is saying is, don't ever do that. There is no dispute between brethren that needs to go to the the pagans, the the, the Gentiles. Sort it out internally. And so he tells them, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, If you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So, the principle here is, there's a dispute, it's unclear. Let's go to somebody, uh, we'll go to the Hessels. We'll take our dispute to the Hessels, and we will have what the world calls binding arbitration. They will be the arbiters. We'll present the case to them, and how they judge it, we'll live with it. That's what Paul is saying to do. And worst case, even if you can't do that, you, 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 the judgment you don't think is fair, he's saying, if you're truly a Christian, allow yourself to be cheated. It's the mind of Christ. He allowed himself to be crucified. And so this is the mind. That the principle of both these passages is humility. Reconciliation through humility. So if we, are, if we are at odds, we cannot have this in God's church. So I'm going to humble myself and do what I can to reconcile that you and I are now connected, reconnected. Even if it means I'll allow myself to be cheated. Forget it. It's just what the gems say today. Material things. Who cares? You know what? I lent you the car. You damaged it. It cost me $1,200 to repair. You should have repaired it. You should give me the money. You're saying, well, I think that, that damage was there already, right? Fine. I'll pay for it. Forget it. It's nothing. Okay. Now, the sticky one is if we have been wrong and seriously wronged. And this is Matthew 18. So Matthew 18 is not for everything. Matthew 18 is if we are the victim of sin. If someone has sinned, and we have been victimized by this sin. This is Matthew 18. 
So Matthew 5, if we are the perpetrator, we're the sinner, or we are perceived as the sinner, we may not be. 1 Corinthians 6, if there's a dispute and it's unclear, we're going to go to binding arbitration within the church. And Matthew 18, if we are the victim of sin. All three have the same principle. Reconciliation through humiliation. This is the principle of all three passages. Matthew 18 is a process, but there's a principle behind the process. And the principle that drives the process is reconciliation through humiliation. And humiliation is a strong word. It's stronger than humility. But I believe it's the right word. Because this is what Christ humiliated himself. That's the mind of Christ. Let's begin then in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus. Okay, we've got to stop. Because the passage begins saying it has a temporal indicator. At the same time. First question we have to ask before we go any further is, what time? What time? At 3 o'clock? Dinner time? Breakfast time? What was the time? Because everything that follows is in the context of something that just happened. It's as if I was to say to you, uh, Jan and I had a conversation, and I'm going to share with you the contents of the conversation. How you perceive the contents of that conversation may differ if I say to you, we had this conversation immediately after the crisis of 9-11. So 9-11 occurred, and then we had this conversation, and this is what we said to each other. So what just happened contextualizes the conversation. If I say, we had, you know, if we had this conversation just after somebody got married, then that's a different context, and the content is going to be perceived differently. So here it says, at that time, we have to go back to Matthew 17 to find out what time. And what we see there... If you look in uh, verses, verse 1, beginning in Matthew 17, is the glorification of Christ, the transfiguration, where they see him in all of his glory. And then going through the, and he tells them to tell the vision to no man. So they, they get a, an, a, a view of what Christ is going to look like in all of his glory. Then there's a, a lunatic that is troubled by a demon, and they can't heal him. So they bring him to Christ, and he heals him. And they say, how come he could do it, but they couldn't? And he explains that it's going to take prayer and fasting. But if they have faith, as small as a mustard seed, they'll be able to move mountains. So this is quite exciting. They see the glory of Christ, and they see that they're going to have the ability to move mountains. And then the passage ends with Christ saying he's about to be betrayed, and then he's going to rise again. And he's going to inherit the kingdom. And then the tax collector comes, and... Christ asks them, do kings collect taxes from their children or from strangers? And they say, from strangers. And so he concludes, then the children are free. So he says, nevertheless, not to cause offense, let's go ahead and pay the taxes. And he tells them to find uh, uh, some money at the mouth of a fish and pay, pay the taxes. But he's indicating to them that he's about to take over the earth. And they won't have to pay taxes because they're the children, they're not strangers. And so they're quite excited about what they have come to understand. Christ is coming. They've seen his glory. He, he's about to take over the earth. And now, at that time, came the disciples to Jesus. So this is the context of Matthew 18. 
the glory that's coming and the power that they're going to have. They came to the disciples unto Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so this is what kicks off Matthew 18. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. I'm going to read a little bit, a little bit of uh, liberty here. I get the sense from reading this that a child is running by. And the child is on its way. And Christ calls the child. And it stops. And it turns around. It does a 180. And it comes back. And Christ sets the child in the midst of them. And this is Jewish society where children have to obey. It's not like our society. Where if you call a child and he comes back, you're shocked. It's like, hey, listen. Right? In Jewish society, you expect that child to listen and do exactly what you said. You know, the child is under authority. And so the child is running. Christ calls him. Does a 180. Comes back. Christ sets him in the midst of them. And then he says, actually, so the, the, this word called is the Greek word proskaleo. And it means to call to the performance of a thing. To summon. So proskaleo means to summon. That I'm calling you to perform a specific thing. And Christ is saying that the child has no choice. When I call that child to come and stand here, it has to do exactly what I said. I have summoned it to do a specific thing. This is the context that Christ is telling us we as subjects have no choice. That when Christ tells us to do this thing, we must do it. We must humble ourselves like the child, do a 180. The human nature in us wants to puff up. I, I want you to believe I am a very important man. And I want your respect. And if I come here each week and everybody spits on me, this is, I would rather physical pain than the psychological pain of your disrespect. It's my human nature. And the more you respect me, the more you look up to me, life is great. I feel good. Because human nature wants to pop up. Christ is summoning, summoning us, proskaleo, to do a 180. Instead of having a nature that wants to puff up, have a nature that will deflate. Go the other way. And it's a command. And he's expecting us to fulfill the command the same way the child had to turn around and come back and do exactly as it was told. Verse 3. He said, Verily, no doubt about this, I say unto you, except you be converted, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we go from, Master, who will be the greatest? And the answer is, you're not going to be there. Did, why, why do you assume that you're going to be there? Unless something miraculous happens, and your nature is changed, I'm sorry, the kingdom is not for you. So stop thinking about who's the greatest, and start just wondering, how do you actually get in? And the only way you can get in is if you are changed. And this word converted is the Greek word strepho. And it means to change or turn one's course of dealing. To turn oneself about. To change one's course of principle and conduct. So again, we know 11 puffs up. So our nature is to puff up. Unless we're converted and we, we have now the nature to deflate. The nature to humble ourselves. 
we can't be in the kingdom. There's no, no, no puffing up in the kingdom. You can't get in. It's like a very narrow door. And if you're puffed up, you can't fit. So only, only, only unleavened bread, sideways, can get through. So we go from who's the greatest to who's that, who's that even going to be there? And then we go to verse 4. Whoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the child's going about its business, he's doing his thing, and he's summoned, he stops, turns around, 180, comes right back, and does exactly as he's told. Whoever can do this, that's who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, and what's the analogy here? It's to Christ himself. This word humble is the Greek word tapanao, tapanao, and it means to depress, to humiliate, to abase and bring low. It's the exact same word used in Philippians 2 describing Christ when it says, and being found in fashion as a man, he tapanao himself, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death. So he, he had an authority over him. The Father was over him. And summoned him to die. And he tapanao himself to death. Now Christ, because of that, God has put him in the highest place. And now he summons us to tapanao to death if necessary. And so only if we are under this authority where we do exactly as we're told, will we be in the kingdom? And so this is how he's setting up Matthew 18, to have the mind of Christ, and he demonstrates it with the child under authority. Verse 5. This is interesting. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. This is profound. This is, this is work out your salvation, listen, with fear and trembling. Because God is in our midst. And he's putting the mind of Christ in Sister Lisa. And then with that mind of Christ, she now has the will and the ability to do God's pleasure. What's God's pleasure? That she would humiliate herself. So I've offended her. With the mind of Christ, she comes to me like a little child, doing exactly as she's told. And he says here, Whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receives me. So I'm, I'm, I'm interacting with Lisa, but the question is, will I receive Christ? She is coming to me with the mind of Jesus Christ, the humility of Jesus Christ. And God is examining me now to see if I will receive and if I do, I am working out my salvation. We are working out our salvation. Verse 6. But, uh-oh, opposite, forget now everything I just said. This is a new situation. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. You know what? This is the word of Christ. It were better for him that... A large millstone were hanged about his neck. And the Greek actually says that a millstone, millstone, was hanged around his neck. That, that a, a mill, it's like you say, a man's man, right? That a millstone's millstone were hanged around his neck. 
and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So you don't mess with God's children. And if Christ's mind is in Sister Lisa, and she comes to me, and I treat her in such a way that I cause offense, it's better for me to never have been born. Better for me to be hung and and thrown into the depth of the sea where there's no oxygen, and I have a painful death. That's better than to have to stand before Christ and explain to him how I crucified him a second time. This word, offend, uh, some translations have stumble, some translations have sin. It's the Greek word skandalazo. Sorry, skandalizo. And it means to stumble, to shock, to excite feelings of repugnance, to, to, to pain, to cause to err. So, if we interact with each other in such a way that we bring out the worst in each other, we cause each other to err, that's scandalizing. Or sorry, scandalizo. And we have to be careful about this. Verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. They're, they're all around us. Woe to the world because of this. Such things must come. It's in our society. It's bound to happen. But woe to the person through whom they come. This is it's just like a, a protected area. Like you could put rope around. Say this is a protected area. Satan's not welcome here. He's all around. He's not welcome here. But woe to the person who is the access gateway for Satan to do his work in the church. Better for us to have a millstone around our neck and we're thrown into the depth of the sea. Verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, that you just can't help you, you're causing offense, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. So we, this is kind of, um, help me adjust here, because I thought we were having a friendly conversation about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And now we're talking about mutilation and eternal fire. This is pretty serious. So, so Christ has just changed the whole tone of the conversation. Yes, you just saw me in my glory. But no, don't take it for granted that you're going to join me. Because I had to go through something in order to attain this glory. And you've been called to follow my example. I humiliated myself and God raised me up. You humiliate yourself and I will raise you up. So just don't be thinking about being raised up and it's just a waltz in the park here. This is mutilation, eternal fire. Now he's not saying literally, I don't believe he's saying literally, let's go amputate ourselves. But I think he is trying to put so much emphasis on what he's saying that we take this very, very seriously. Verse 9. If your eye causes you to stumble... Gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So this whole conversation has taken this very serious turn. And fundamentally this is why. 
God is saying, you make sure that you do not despise one of my little ones. So everybody here is a little one. Everybody in God's church, regardless of organization, regardless of geographic location, everyone in God's church is a little one. We must esteem them better than ourselves. There's nobody in God's church that is smaller than us. Everybody is better than us. And this is how we have to interact and make sure under no circumstances that we have a feeling of despising against a brother or sister. Christ is saying, you make sure under no circumstances. Better for you to go amputate yourself and be a cripple the rest of your life and find your way somehow to get over that and get into the kingdom than to feel high and mighty and despise one of my little ones. It's not going to go well. It, uh, it's not going to go well. For I tell you, this, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So, in other words, there's nothing that happens to us that isn't reported to the Father immediately. They have immediate access to Him. And they are reporting directly what they see. Now, verse 12. Come on, what do you think? Think about this. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what do you think he will do? Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? This is the principle of Matthew 18. This is what we must grasp. This is the way God thinks. That if all of us are here, we're a hundred people. And I do something wrong. I, uh, Brother Jan in his, uh, Deacon Jan in his sermon spoke about going from uh, sin to uh, transgression to uh, sorry, error to transgression to iniquity. If I'm on that journey, I started off making an error. My heart kind of got hardened. And now I'm in the stage of transgression. The way God's mind works is he will leave all of you because you're cool, you're good. And he will seek me out to try to bring me back from this journey that I'm on, on my way to iniquity, where I'm now hardened and I can't be saved. He's going to leave you because you're safe and he's going to pursue me. We must have the mind of Christ. When we see a brother or a sister going down this journey, going down this path, because it can happen, we're human can happen. All kinds of things happen in the church. And, and the only way it can happen is if somebody starts on this journey. They start small, they get hardened, and the sin, they get bolder, and it starts to get uglier. But they have to start somewhere on this journey. And it happens in the church. And Satan is out after us. The mind of God, the mind of Christ, is to pursue that person. And don't let them get away. Don't let them lose out on this salvation. This is the mind we must have. And this is the principle that drives Matthew 18. As we deal with these ugly conflicts in the church, what's in our mind is we don't want anybody to lose their salvation. We are working out our salvation together. And, and I'm esteeming you higher than myself. So I'm going to be willing to humiliate myself if it means finding you as the lost sheep and bringing you back. This is the way God thinks. 
Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So this is the mind of God, and this is how we must be. That something has happened. I'm going to pick on Deacon Jan again. We have had an interaction, and in some way I have violated him. If he has the mind of himself, the mind of man, he's going to be concerned about his ego has been offended, and he's going to want to put me in my place. If he has the mind of Christ, he's going to see that my salvation is in jeopardy. That it's better for me to have a millstone hung around my neck and be thrown into the depth of the sea. Because when I have to face Christ, it is going to be catastrophic. And so with the mind of Christ, he's not worried about his ego. He's worried about me coming back into the fold. And he's going to pursue me. He's going to leave all of you. He's going to pursue me until he brings me back. And when he does, he will rejoice over me more than the rest of you. Because I was at risk. And he brought me back. And this is what Matthew 18. This is the mindset. This is the principle before we get into the process. So let me pause here before we go to the process and see what your thoughts, comments, questions might be. Brother Ray. This is, this is talking about damnation. This is eternal health. You know, this is, you're gone. You're out. So they're saying, who's going to be the greatest? He's saying, you might perish. Don't, don't take it for granted you're going to be in the kingdom. You've got to decide, are you going to be heading to perishing or to salvation? There's no in-between. Right. Yes. Even though he might die physically, yes. he's still saved yes. spiritually. And we're going to look at that, but that's the process of saving, right? Yeah. That at this, where this person is, the right thing to do is to send them out and put them outside of the protection of the church. And hopefully they come to their senses. We're going to keep praying for them, and then they come back. And that's exactly what happened. We're going to, we're going to look at that in the process. Oh, and also because uh, it leaves the 99 behind, it goes after Well, it's his desire to come and get me. But my salvation is not secure. We have to work this out. I could refuse. I could refuse. And and not everybody's going to be in the kingdom. Not everybody in the church. And this this is this is what Matthew 18 is telling us. Not everybody in the church is going to be in the kingdom. And that there are brethren here among us, we, we can say, I love God. This is just so awesome. I love the truth. I love my Bible. I read it every day. I just don't like people. I just don't like Gord, Brother Gord. I love people. I just don't like Brother Gord. God is saying, I'm a liar. 
I'm a liar. No liar will be in the kingdom. So here I am, fellowshipping. We're going week every week. Everything's going well. I feel so spiritual. I give sermons. I give prayers. I give Bible studies. I just can't stand Gordon. And I'm fooling myself. I am fooling myself. And when Christ judges, no, no liar will be in the kingdom. So this is, this is very, very... The weight of these words is so profound. We have to see this. What could it be that those that do perish, that do, uh, are uh, eternally damned to hell fire, who are never true believers in the Yes. Uh, well, it's true that there are people amongst us that were never true believers. Right? Wheat and tares grow together. Uh, they're just, this is not their dispensation. So they'll be out. They'll come up in the second resurrection. And then, then we'll see what happens there. We can't conclude that they're not going to make it. They're just not part of this dispensation. But God has them in our midst. The wheat and the tares grow together. Yeah, I know that. John said they went out from us. But they were not. They exactly. Exactly. Brother Gordon. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the, the point of Adrian in uh, verse 10, 1810. Yes. And also to answer uh, uh, the question of Gray that uh, you just mentioned, it says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. Who is referring that they are called, they're the little ones. Yes. They're not a guy that's here uh, on false pretenses. That's right. So that's that, right. that little one. That's talking right. about the little ones. That's right. Not, not somebody that's that's They're, they're just reporting back what yes, they see. And exactly. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, Brother Paul. Pastor Murray used a term when he was giving a sermon, that, that same sermon I believe on one another, and he spoke about wounding the soul, right? That things can happen amongst us that actually wound us in the soul and, and cause us to stumble. And, and we cannot perform at the level that we should be. This, if we do this to one another, Christ is saying, whoa, whoa. Yeah, it's definitely negative. Uh, Brother Larry. In that verse, it says, "Woe to the world." Yes. It's, it seems to me that it's talking about people of the world who are God's children. Uh, no, no, it's, it's good point. But Matthew 18 is about how God's children interact with each other, and he's saying offenses must come, right? and woe to the world because of these things. God, 
In other words, the world, uh, again, um, Deacon Jan's sermon, speaking about sin in society, we don't even hear the word sin anymore. It's rampant, but we don't talk about it. It's everywhere. They're not going to get away with this. God is, God is like a pregnant woman. And, and he's about to go into labor. And nothing can stop the, the birth of his wrath. So his wrath is coming. And woe to the world for these things. They're doing it to each other. They're doing Woe to the world for these things. Because of the things that cause people to stumble. Woe to the world. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. Through whom they come. So this, this behavior that's in the world. Adultery. Deacon Jan spoke about that. That's behavior in the world. That can come into the church. Woe to the man through whom that behavior penetrates the church. So that's what it's saying. That these things are these things happen. But woe to the person who that Satan comes into the church through me. Woe. But yeah, the world's going to get its judgment. But me more so. God forbid. Okay, let me go on through the process now, and then we'll stop again. So, beginning in verse 15, so this is the principle. Reconciliation through humiliation. Reconciliation through the mind of Christ. What is the process? Here's the process. Verse 15. If your brother or sister, this translation says sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Uh, other translations say, if your brother sins against you. And I think that's the better sense. So, the trigger for Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is not to be used willy-nilly. It's not like, hey, Matthew 18, something happened, oh, you stepped on my toe. Matthew 18. Right? The trigger for Matthew 18 is, you have sinned against me. Now, when you sin against me, you've, you've violated my ego. My ego is very strong. So I want to retaliate. I want to strike back. Part of how I like to strike back is to tell everybody what you've done. And the more people I tell, the better I feel. Especially if they agree with me that you're bad. The mind of Christ is saying... You've sinned against me. You're in trouble. You're in jeopardy. I need to save you. I need to leave the 99. And I need to come to you and bring you back. And the way that I bring you back is to roll out the red carpet. What's the red carpet? I humiliate myself and I let you walk all over me. Walk all over me and come back into the church. And if you do this, I will never mention what you did. It stays with me. This is very, very difficult. For my ego. Very, very difficult. But with the mind of Christ, God gives me the will and the ability to do this. You've sinned against me. I come to you and I confront you. And you repent. And I never mention it again. As much as I'm, I want to talk about it, I want to tell people what you've done to me. And how honorable I am. And how horrible you are. But the, the God gives me the ability to do his good pleasure. And that's to humble myself keep it between us and, and bring you back. <clears throat> this word sin is the Greek word harmatano. It's sin. So this word harmatano is 264 in Strong's. 
Then there's Harmatema, which is 265 in Strong's. And then there's Harmatia, which is 266 in Strong's. These words, Harmatana is the root word. But all of these words are sin. That we all sin and come short of the glory of God. That, let me just read some of these other passages that use this word, Harmatana. For as many have sinned without law also perish. And as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What then, shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body. But he that commits fornication, harmatanos, his own body. This is the truth. That your brother, harmatano, he's violated the Ten Commandments and you have been, you've been a victim of this. Go to him or her one-on-one. Confront them. And if they repent, you've gained your brother. But you don't go arrogant. You go in all humility. Explaining to them what they've done. It's like a victim impact statement. This is what you've done. What you've done to my family. What you've done to my children. Right? What you've done to my ability to earn a living. You, know, this, you, you caused me uh, whatever. This, this is what you've done. And if you see true repentance, you've won. You've, you've, you've done what God, you've, God has been an agent, or you've been an agent of God, and you've brought your brother back from the way of error. And this is just, you, we won't turn it, I'll just read you um, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This is the mind of God, that I've been oppressed, and I've been afflicted, and I'm not going to open my mouth. Stays with me. I went to my brother. He repented. He's very sorry. He realizes now what he's done. I open not my mouth, because this is the mind of Christ. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And then 1 Peter 2.21, For even here unto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. So Christ suffered not for himself. He suffered for us. I must suffer for my brother, for my sister. So it, it's painful for me to be the victim and not tell anybody. But I'm going to do that for my brother or my sister to bring them back and protect their honor. I'll give up mine to protect theirs. Matthew 18 is very, very difficult. This is a very, very difficult scripture. And I think, personally, I've been in the church 29 years, something like that. I, I've never seen Matthew 18. Done. Maybe at level one here, maybe because it's private, but I've never really seen this done. And, and we, uh, Murray and Deacon Jan and I, Pastor Murray, Deacon Jan and I, we've talked about this and we are committed to following the scripture. We are going to practice Matthew 18. And when things go wrong, we're going to be governed by Matthew 18, if it's, if it's appropriate. If it's Matthew 5, that's Matthew, or 1 Corinthians 6, but we're going to be governed by the scriptures. And where you've been wronged, where you're a victim of sin, we're going to expect you to follow Matthew 18. And we're going to, we're going to back you up. We're going to back you up. Verse 16. But if they will not listen, 
So you go with your victim impact statement, and they're careless. They don't listen. They, they haven't repented. What do you do then? Okay, now we go to level two. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So I may come to you and I may say, um, Brother Gord, uh, Brother Paul, I have a situation here with uh, Brother Morley. Do you mind just coming with me while I address Brother Morley? Now, I'm not telling them anything up front. I'm not telling them what I think Brother Morley did or why I think he's wrong. That's not, it's not my purpose to persuade them. And it's not their purpose to in, inter, interfere. Their purpose is simply to establish what was said by who, when. They're witnesses. And if I'm actually very close to them, and Morley is not close to them, I may not choose them. Maybe I'll go to uh, Brother Ray and Sister Olivia, because I know that Morley has a good relationship with them. Because I want unbiased witnesses. I don't want somebody biased in my favor. And I say, I have an issue with Brother Morley. Would you mind just coming with me while I talk to him? <coughs> so they come, and their purpose is to establish every word. They're going to listen to what, how, how I say it, what I say, how I say it, how Brother Morley responds. And that's their purpose. Now, let me do it the other way. Brother Morley's come to me and he's bringing the witnesses. And so I see this and I say, oh, oh I get this now. So the first time he came to me, I didn't quite get that this was a Matthew 18 situation, right? We were in the backyard talking and he tells me what, what happened, how I affected him, and I, I kind of brush it off. Now he comes back with Brother Ray and Sister Olivia, and I'm like, oh, oh, this is, this is Matthew 18. I get it. Okay. So I might say, okay, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm really sorry about that. Because I don't want it to go to the next level. Okay. So they're going to listen to how I respond, and they are now going to be witnesses for Brother Morley. I may be arrogant and not, not uh, respond well to him at all. When Deacon Jan was reading from Hebrews this morning, it caught my attention. Let's go there. Hebrews 10. And he was in verse 26. So I've sinned against my brother. And it says here, verse 26, If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. So it's one thing for me to make a mistake. It's another thing now for me to willfully do this. And, and my attitude towards my brother when he comes to me in the, in the mind of Christ is going to demonstrate whether I am, it was a mistake or I'm willful. There's no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. So it just took two or three witnesses to establish what was said and done. And that person was put to death, as long as there were two or three witnesses. In the same way, in the same sense here, we have these two witnesses now, within the body, establishing every word. Yes, we heard. Morley went to Adrian, and he explained this. And Adrian wouldn't listen. And Morley asked again, could, he just, could, could I not interrupt him? And could he please explain what has happened? And this time Adrian did listen for a little while, but then he just got arrogant again. 
and they can establish every single word. And I say, did, did you hear that right? Yes. And Sister Olivia, is that? Yes. Two witnesses. Okay, it's established. Now we go to level three. If they still refuse to listen, so I, I, I'm refusing to listen, tell it to the church. Level three is to tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So now at level three, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean, or what does Christ mean by the church? So at now, now um, Morley's at level three. He came to me individually. He came to me with two witnesses. I'm not listening. Now the scripture tells him, Morley, tell it to the church. What do we mean by the church? Morally, the church means the ministry. Okay? Tell it to the ministry. We have to ask ourselves, is that what the scripture says? So Jesus Christ is talking to his disciples. The church doesn't even exist. He hasn't died yet. He said, tell it to the ecclesia. The ecclesia are the called out ones. So what they know is, yeah, we have an assembly. We have a group of men that Christ has called out, and he's working with them. And if Morley was a disciple of Christ, and Christ said to him, Morley, tell it to the ecclesia. Morley wouldn't be saying, oh, I think I'll go to the regional director. Or I think I will go to uh, elder such and such. There's no such thing. He would just know, I need to go to the ecclesia. When we assemble next, I'm going to tell it to the ecclesia. And I'll, I'll just share a story briefly. In my former association, the top minister gave an edict that every member of the church must cut off all their family members who are not in the church. And I looked at this edict and I said, this edict seems to contradict the Ten Commandments that tell me to honor my father and mother. And now you're telling me to cut them off and dishonor them. You know what? I'm not going to play this game unless you can show me from the Bible. So I said this to the local minister. Show me from the Bible that, I ha that you have the authority to tell me to cut off my parents, my, my father-in-law. He couldn't do it. So he escalated it to the regional director. And the regional director came, hot and heavy. And I said, show me from the Bible. And he started showing me booklets. And I said, I'm not interested in booklets. Show me from the Bible. And they took time and they sent it to different people doing study and analysis. And I wrote them in the scripture, showed them everything. They couldn't answer me. Went to the top man. Then it came back down. And I showed up for services one day and they showed me the door. They said, you are now disfellowshipped and marked. To this day, what are we, some... Ten years later? Seven years later? I don't know. If I see my own brethren, who I know they love me and I love them, but if I was to go down the street here and see them in the shopping mall, they would shun me. Because I've been disfellowshipped and marked. Because the minister disfellowshipped and marked. The brethren have no idea why. They have no idea that I was demanding that they teach me from the Bible, not from their imagination, not from their booklets. 
Brethren, I have no idea. I'm disfellowshipped and marked. So what does it mean when Christ says, tell it to the church? I think if we say, tell it to the ministry, we're setting ourselves up for abuse. He says, tell it to the church. And I'll just, uh, this, I find this um, passage from uh, The Looking Glass quite fascinating. This is from The Looking Glass. Humpty Dumpty and Alice in Wonderland having a conversation. Alice says, I don't know what you mean by glory. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That is all. And that's the question here. Who defines what these words mean? The question is, what, can you make words mean so many different things? No. The question is, which is to be master? That's all. So if Humpty Dumpty is master, he can make words whatever, mean whatever he wants them to mean. We have to let Christ be the master. And the words mean what Christ says they mean. And so Brother Morley, he says now at stage three, tell it to the ecclesia. The ecclesia is not the ministry. It's the church. And I have been decades believing it was the ministry. And when I study this, ecclesia means a popular meeting, especially a religious congregation, an assembly. This is what we, and if, you, if we were in ancient Greece, the ecclesia were the citizens who ran the country. So they would have the ecclesia come out to make decisions, and they would vote and make these decisions. Tell it to the ecclesia. Now, second question then is, do we have an example of this in the scriptures? Let's see this. In 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Here is harmatano. <clears throat> it is reported commonly that there is harmatano among you. Porneia. That is, that's, that's sin. It's reported commonly in this church that there's porneia. And such porneia as is not so much named among the Gentiles. This is extreme. That one should have his father's wife. Unbelievable. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed may be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, when you're in your assembly, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this brother, if we can call him that, I think we can, he is erred. And so much so that he's worse than the Gentiles. Again, what you were saying, where you, it just it grows, it gets worse. He doesn't start out like this, but he allows sin to take over. 
And he's saying, when you're gathered together, make the judgment to put this man out. And, and the seriousness of this will shock him to make a decision. Am I in or am I out? This is not a game I'm playing. Now, it worked. They put him out, and he came back. Now let's see this now in 2 Corinthians 2. Verse 1. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come to you in heaviness, come to you again in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he that, ma- that can make me glad, but the same which, made, which was made sorry by me? So this same man that he put out and made sorry, this is the same man that can make him glad, because he's, he's the one, he's, Paul's leaving the 99 to go after this one to get him back, and will rejoice over him more. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came... I should have sorrow from them whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. This is a very different relationship than Philippians. Right? Philippians are his joy. Here he's writing to them with much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears. It's a very troubled relationship he had with this church. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he has not grieved me but in part, that I may not overcharge you. Listen to this. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, this was his punishment, which was inflicted by the ministry. I don't see that here. It was inflicted by the ecclesia. When you're gathered together, make a judgment. And so the ecclesia comes together, and it says it was inflicted of the many. This is the Greek word plion, which means more in quantity or number, the major portion. So we come together, and the majority made this decision that he should be put out. And so Paul is saying that this punishment which was inflicted of the many, actually worked. It was the ecclesia that made the judgment. Let's go back to Matthew 18. Actually, so keep your place there. We're going to come back to Matthew, uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Keep a finger there. And then just pop over to Matthew 18. So you need a finger in Matthew 18 and you need a finger in First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 2. We're going to go with that. Uh, so Matthew 18... And verse 18. So when it gets to level 3, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then quickly go back to 2 Corinthians 2. And verse 10, where Paul says to the Ecclesia, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it the person of Christ. So Paul is kind of echoing the same language as Matthew 18, that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Paul is saying, whoever you forgive, I'll forgive. So you, as an ecclesia, have a judgment. And I will back up your judgment. Back to Matthew 18. 19. Again I say to you, 
that if two of you shall agree on earth in touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. So when the ecclesia come together, the judgment that will be made, we appeal to God, and God will back us up as an ecclesia. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So believe me, when it gets to level three, Christ is very, very concerned about the outcome. And we saw the concern of Paul writing to the Corinthian church and saying, you should be ashamed of yourself. I'm, I'm absent and I've already judged the matter. Make a judgment on this man and put him out. And then he repents. Now bring him back and, and comfort him. Receive him back. Now, if you were the father-in-law, and you were a brother in the church, and this man is coming back in the church, your stepson or son-in-law, whatever he is, you have to receive him. That's what, we're under judgment, we're under authority here. Okay. So, he's saying, Christ will guide the decision. Let me pause here, and see if there's any questions or comments about the process. It's a three-step process. The principle is humiliation to drive reconciliation. The process has three steps. Go to your brother alone. If he repents, don't talk about it. Receive him back, it's over. If he doesn't, take two witnesses that every word may be established. If he repents, wonderful. If he doesn't, take it to the church. And I think here in this congregation, we would ask Pastor Murray to have a town hall meeting. Or we would just, maybe after services, We'll just raise the issue. I haven't spoken to Pastor Murray about the details. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.